We will pick up where we left off in John chapter 8. Mid-conversation between Jesus and the Jews in the women's court of the temple, the treasury area of the temple. As we talked about last week, after the healing, or the, well, I guess we could say the healing, the, the forgiving, the non-condemning of the woman caught in adultery, as Jesus said to her, go your way and sin no more. After that, he engages in conversation. And you know from the oldest to the youngest of them, those who dragged the woman in front of Jesus began to leave and dissipate into the crowd and disappear. But that didn't mean that his opponents had left. And so there were Jews in the court that were believing in Jesus, beginning to believe, beginning to think that perhaps there's something to this man. And there were others there who were still in opposition, kind of gathered around, and this conversation ensues. And as the conversation goes on, you will see tonight, it gets increasingly contentious. So let's pick up verse 37 of chapter 8. I know that you are Abraham's descendants. Now this is Jesus speaking. And he's referring back to their claim in verse 33. So let's draw back slightly. Verse 33, they say, We are Abraham's descendants and have never yet been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Because remember, Jesus said you will be free. The truth will make you free. If you continue in my word, you're disciples of mine. You'll know the truth and the truth will make you free. And so they say... We're Abraham's descendants. We've never yet been enslaved to anyone. They spoke these words in the shadow of an imposing structure on the northwest corner of the Temple Mount known as the Fortress of Antonia. A Roman garrison built by Herod when he built the new temple structure, when he built the Temple Mount. Why? Because he was trying to appease Mark Antony. And so he said, well, listen, I'll build this great garrison there too, and I'll name it after you. So the fortress of Antonia, that's the same place where Jesus would be beaten and abused by the Roman guards. And that structure up there on the Temple Mount, right above them, they were far from free. One word, Rome. Not to mention their entire history of slavery and dispersion and oppression. And yet they say, we're Abraham's. Descendants, How can you say we'll be free? We are free. (laughs) Those born into slavery rarely recognize that they are truly slaves. Until they come out from under it. And so Jesus says in verse 34, Truly, truly, I say to you, and note this, when Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, Amen, Amen, twice in a row, He's laying down some serious truth. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. So if the son makes you free, you will be free indeed. We need to remember this when confronting specifically those who do not believe. We need to keep in mind that they may not even recognize or even be able to realize the slavery that they are under. That they are, in essence, captive, just as I was, just as you were, before coming to Christ, before the Son made us free indeed. And by the way, my freedom doesn't make me better, it just makes me saved. It just makes me free. It's something Jesus did. But Paul puts it this way in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 24. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged. That's interesting. The Lord's bondservant. Who does that describe? Everybody. Everybody. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you are a bondservant. Free, but enslaved to righteousness, as Paul talks about in Romans 6. We become free bondservants. We are sons and daughters by our inheritance, but we are bondservants by choice, by our response to the Lord. And he says the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, which we can all do, able to teach. How many are able to teach? How many of you feel comfortable, in fact, why don't I just call on a few people to come on up tonight and take, able to teach. Do you realize that is a call of every single follower of Jesus Christ? Are you able to teach? If not, why not? It's part of your calling. 
It is not your calling to come and just sit under Pastor Rick's teaching week in and week out. I love having you here. Don't get me wrong. But it is every believer's call to be able to teach, whether in Bible study, or one-on-one with someone they're leading to the Lord, or among other Christians, able to teach. Patient when wronged, because if you're going to teach, you're going to be wronged. <laughs> so you've got to be patient. With gentleness, Paul says, correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, and that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. So that's a description of anyone outside of Jesus, held captive by the devil. And the calling of anyone in Jesus, free in Christ, is to be able to teach and be patient with and kind toward and not quarrelsome with those who are not free indeed. But he says the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, which I believe means we need to be like Jesus. And yet I have one question that I want you to consider as we go through the rest of the chapter tonight. Is Jesus himself not being a bit antagonistic to the Jews? Watch this. Picking up in verse 37 now. I know that you are Abraham's descendants, he said. I get it. Father Abraham had many sons. Yet, you... Seek to kill me, because my word has no place in you. You seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. Let me tell you a couple of things important to know about freedom. And Jesus right here says, you want to take me out because my word's not getting in. The phrase has no place. Some of your Bibles mention this in the margins and it's incredibly important. The phrase has no place. My word has no place in you is literally my word makes no progress in you. It makes no progress. It's not going anywhere. You hear it and it drops. Like James says, hearers of the word but not doers of the word. First thing you need to understand about freedom is that it is in progression. That it is not static. That it's always moving. Always growing. Jesus said back in verse 31, if you continue in my word, then you're disciples of mine and you'll know the truth and the truth will make you free. You never stand still in your freedom. It is always forward moving. In other words, freedom must advance to grow. It must be fed with truth. It must be nurtured with His Word or it dies. Which is why I think Paul said to the first century Christians in Galatia, stand firm in your freedom. Don't be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Keep walking free. Don't go back to your prior enslavement. It's what Jesus said to the woman caught in adultery. Go your way and sin no more. Progress in that freedom. Go forward. Advance the freedom that you have in Christ Jesus. Mark my words. The slow death of freedom in America is directly related to the stifling of God's Word from the marketplace. And from the church. And the question is, is the word of Christ, he says, if you continue in my word, is the word of Christ making progress in you? That's why I asked a few minutes ago, how many could be teachers right now? How many are ready to teach? If you're not, and and I'm not trying to cast dispersion here, but if you're not, why not? Allow the Word to make progress in you. Study the Word that you might teach someone else the very Word that you're taking in yourself, that it is advancing. I know I say this all the time. I'm so thankful that you are here tonight. Because to me, you are the Bible students of the Bridge Fellowship. If you're showing up on Wednesday night, you're hungering for the Word. You want more. You already know I go longer on Wednesday night than Sunday morning. And yet you keep coming. Because you want the Word. God bless you for that. Paul said in Philippians 2.12, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Man, work out, progress, advance, strengthen, grow, go forward in your freedom. Freedom never stands still. 
Because the moment freedom stands still, the previous enslavement will begin to overtake it. And again, I think America is a perfect example of that. Verse 38. He goes on and he says, I speak the things which I have seen with my father. Therefore, you also do the things which you heard from your father. (laughs) Now, talk about being a little antagonistic. Your father ain't Abraham, Jesus is saying. He's the adversary. But they won't get that, not at first. They won't pick up on this for a few more times. He's going to have to say it like three times before they start to realize what he's really saying. But before he says that, note, he says, I speak the things which I have seen with my father. Para ho pater in the Greek. Para ho pater, that is, in the presence of my father. And that's the second thing to understand about freedom, is freedom not only progresses in his word as we continue in his word, but it progresses in the presence of the father. As we've been talking about it's not just consuming His Word. It's, it's communing with His Spirit. It is the gushing, overflowing, living water. It's being in the presence of God. Jesus said, John fourteen sixteen, I will ask the Father and He will give you another Helper that He may be with you forever. Helper, para, kletos. Para. That is along, kletos, parakletos is one who comes alongside you. Para, to be with the Father, to be near the Father, to be in the presence of the Father. Jesus says, look, I'm going to send the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it does not see Him or know Him. You know Him because He abides with you and will be in you. And so, yes, we want to continue in His Word, but we need to commune with His Spirit. We sang the song a few minutes ago, uh, Here I Am, Adonai. And the the bridge part of the song, I I like it because it allows us to kind of settle in worship and really cry out to God. But there's something that was bugging me tonight about it. First of all, it says, I want to yearn for for you, my God. Every time I I sing that, I think, well, then do it. Why are we singing about wanting to do it? That's why I changed the words momentarily there. Oh, how I yearn for you, my God. I do yearn. I'm yearning right now for you, my Lord. But then he says this, come and fill this heart of mine. That's bad theology. God doesn't come fill your heart. He wells up from within your heart. That's what the living water does. Springing up from within. Holy Spirit's already present, gang. If you are in Jesus Christ, the Spirit is here. He comes up from within. He doesn't come... This whole idea in Christianity, I really don't know where it began, but the idea of inviting His Spirit to come join me. That's like sitting down to dinner with my wife and saying, Hey, Cheryl, I'd love for you to join me tonight. She's here, you know? It's like getting on the phone. She's at the table and I'm on the phone going, Oh, you know, Cheryl, I would love to have dinner with you tonight. Won't you please come and join me? She would look at me like I was nuts. Like you're looking at me right now. Don't ask the Spirit to join you. He's with you. You join Him. You become aware of Him. Communing with the living water, the Spirit of the Lord. See, where freedom is concerned, Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 3.17, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is what? Liberty. Freedom. Where the Spirit is, there's liberty. I mean, consider Jesus. Who on earth ever knew freedom like Jesus did? He went where He wanted to go. He did what He wanted to do. Actually, he did what the Father wanted him to do, but that was what he wanted to do at the same time. He was never moved or motivated or or driven by man or by rules or by authorities other than his Father. Completely free. The Word made flesh walking in the presence of the Father. But they acclaim, one more time, allegiance to Abraham. Remember, he just said, you do the things you heard from your father. And they said to him, verse 39, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to them, if you're Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham. But as it is, you're seeking to kill me. A man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God, this Abraham did not do. 
You are doing the deeds of your Father. Now hold it right there. Another zinger goes right over their heads. But you're doing the deeds of your Father. What? Father Abraham? They keep referring to Father Abraham. That's a typical Jewish phrase. Referring to Abraham. They will say Father Abraham. They'll say uh, Moses our teacher. They'll say David our king. Abraham our father. Moses our teacher. David our king. And Jesus says if you're Abraham's kids, act like it. His spirit inspired Isaiah the prophet to write these words. Isaiah 51 verse 2. Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, who seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were hewn and to the quarry from which you were dug. Look to Abraham your father and to Sarah who gave birth to you in pain. But when he was but one, I called him and then I blessed him and I multiplied him. Jesus says if you're Abraham's children, act like it. Do what Abraham did. What did Abraham do? He believed. He believed God. He took God at His word. And all that came through Abraham to the Jewish people came simply by faith in the promises, the blessings, and the multiplication of God. It was God's work. It was God's doing. Abraham just showed up and had faith. Genesis 26.4 I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heavens. I will give your descendants all these lands and by your descendants all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because Abraham obeyed me and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. That's what Abraham did. What did Abraham not do? Notice Jesus said this Abraham did not do What did Abraham not do? Abraham didn't try to silence the truth, for one thing. Now, he fibbed a bit. He played the deceiver on occasion. But he didn't try to silence the truth. He accepted the truth as it was. Something else that Abraham didn't do. Listen, Abraham didn't want to kill the son. They want to kill Jesus bad. Abraham was called by God in obedience to offer up Isaac as a sacrifice. But Abraham never wanted to. And at the last, God stayed his hand, right? He didn't want to kill the son. They want to kill Jesus. Now, the tension in the courtyard is starting to get thick because they blurred out. They said to him, we were not born of fornication. We have one father, God. Where did that slam come from? They just implied Jesus was a bastard. We weren't born of fornication, like you. Perhaps at this point, someone dredged up the old gossip. You know, it's interesting, some wonder why the doctrine of the virgin birth is not mentioned in the Gospel of John. I think he left it to Jesus' enemies right there. We were not born of fornication, we have one Father, God. Jesus said to them, if God were your Father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and have come from God. For I have not even come on my own initiative, but He sent me. That's so astounding. Listen to how blatantly obvious Jesus is being. I came forth from God. That's where I come from. I can't say that. Neither can you. I can say I came forth from the womb. I can say God knit me together in my mother's womb. Psalm 139. But I didn't come forth from God. I was created by God. But I didn't come from Him. You know, this, this weird little uh, idea that some out in culture have about, you know, we all just kind of floated around in heaven before we were born. You know, or maybe we were little stars. And then we, I mean, it's, there's so many weird things that people come up with. Hey, I did not exist before I was knit together in my mother's womb. That's where I came from. Jesus says, I came forth from God. He's being so blatantly obvious It's astounding. And then he says, Why do you not understand what I am saying? It's because you cannot hear my word. Why couldn't they hear his word? John would later remember this. 1 John chapter 5 verse 1. And he would write down, Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. Whoever, Whoever loves the Father loves the begotten of Him. Love the Father, love the Son. 
Love the Son. Love the Father. That's how it works. Love the Father. Hear the Son. Love the Son. Hear the Father. Again, that's how it works. And the reason why the Jewish leaders could not get it, the reason why they were so anti-Jesus, even when the truth was right in front of their faces, was because prior to Jesus even coming, they did not love God. Had they loved the Father, they would have loved the Son. They would have welcomed Him with open arms. But they didn't. The primary issue with the Pharisees was the absence of the love of God. Instead, they had other, other loves. They loved their religion. They loved their tradition. They loved their power. 2 Timothy 3, 4, and 5, Paul wrote, rather than lovers of God, they were holding to a form of godliness, although they had denied its power, avoid such men as these. What do you love? Who do you love? What would you consider yourself to be a lover of? Or who are you a lover of? If you love God, you're going to love the Son. If you love Jesus, guess what? You love God. It runs both ways. Well, verse 44. Okay, buckle up. Jesus says, You are of your father, the devil. And you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning. He does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature. For he is a liar and the father of lies. Boom. Now, tell you what, I'll read further and come back to this. But because I speak the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of a sin? And by the way, none of his enemies ever did. They couldn't convict him of a sin. He was too righteous. They could only say he claims to be God. Therefore, setting himself up as a king against Rome. That was all they could come up with. Because he was so good. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I speak truth, why do you not believe me? He's not saying that because he's asking for his own benefit. He's asking for theirs. Why do you not believe me? Think about this. What is keeping you from believing me when all I'm doing is speaking truth to you? He who is of God hears the words of God. For this reason you do not hear them because you are not of God. Slam down. Here we go. Jesus is getting all over it. He reads their murderous intents like a bad Facebook page and gives a deeply intense rebuke. I mean, he is going after them and he calls out the source of their main sin. See, they say the devil is in the details. And so Jesus details the devil. Now look again at verse 44. You are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature for he is a liar and the father of lies. And in one sentence, Jesus gives us an amazing teaching on demonology. On Satanology. Although he doesn't even call him Satan. Maybe that's the first thing to understand. Jesus calls him Diabolos. The devil. He'll refer to him as Satan in other places, but here it's simply the devil. Satan means adversary. Diabolos, devil, means accuser. Both of these names are descriptive of the nature of the devil. He is the accuser and he is the adversary. Revelation 12 verse 10 calls him the accuser of our brethren who accuses them before our God day and night. This is what Satan does. He accuses you before God, and He accuses you to yourself, too, by the way. He tries to shame. He tries to guilt trip. It's His favorite pastime. Now, for expanded understanding of who Satan is, of what he did, of how he began, of how he fell, of the whole thing, two places to go. In the Hebrew Scriptures, you need to go to Isaiah 14. And go to Ezekiel 28. Those are the two spots if you want to really study this out. And we did teachings and studies on both of these as we went through the Hebrew Scriptures. Isaiah 14, 12 through 15, and Ezekiel 28, verses 13 through 17 specifically, give great information about the past, present, and future of Satan. 
But Jesus here calls him a murderer. The common Greek word for murderer is phonuo. The less common word for murderer, actually the word for assassin, is sikarios. And Jesus doesn't use either one of those words here. He uses a very interesting word. He says, Satan, the devil, was a murderer from the beginning. The word murderer there in the Greek is anthropoktonos. Anthro, man. Paktonos, slaughterer. He is a manslaughterer. He was a manslaughterer from the very beginning. Note that about Satan. Satan is a purposeful manslaughterer. That's what he does. That's his desire to slaughter mankind. Why? Because God loves mankind so very much. And so from the very beginning, that was his intention, to slaughter us. Through his deception, death entered the world in the first place. He deceived the woman. The woman enticed the man. They sinned. Death entered the world. The manslaughterer, that's where he got his start in the beginning. And he's been about the slaughter of man ever since. Ezekiel 28.16 tells us, By the abundance of your trade you are internally filled with violence, and you sinned. Therefore I have cast you as profane from the mountain of God. I have destroyed you, O covering cherub, from from the midst of the stones of fire. Jesus will later say in John 10, verse 10, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Peter said in 1 Peter 5, 8, Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Satan is a purposeful manslaughterer. Second thing Jesus says, Satan is a premeditated liar. That is... His deceit is never accidental. He never slips up. He never, you know, deceives without intending to do so. The Greek word for liar there, pseudos, is conscious, intentional lying. It's all part of the plan. He wasn't always that way. In fact, Ezekiel 28.15 says, You were blameless in your ways. From the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. So he began well, ended bad. And all this adds up to one big undeniable Jesus truth. Satan is a purposeful manslaughterer. Satan is a premeditated liar. And number three, and probably most importantly we need to understand, Satan is a person. He is not a persona. He's not just the idea of evil, not the personification of evil. He is an actual, literal being. Jesus makes it absolutely clear. In this place and in numerous others, He refers to Him as a Him, as a He, as an actual person. Gang, spiritual warfare is not some jacked up idea by some religious zealot somewhere. It's real and actual. There are real and actual demons. Satan is a real and actual demon himself. And he would slaughter mankind if he could. And he is nothing but lies. Demonic attacks. Pain in the world. Brutality. Wickedness. You can trace it all back to the hand of Satan and his demonic horde functioning to try and mess up what God created and called good. He's not the evil equivalent to God. He's a bad guy who's a really bad guy. You know, it's not like what what uh, Wreck-It Ralph. Have you seen Wreck-It Ralph? <laughs> And all the bad guys in the video games are like, I'm a bad guy, but that doesn't make me a bad guy. You know? Hey, Satan is a bad guy who is a bad guy. But why do we have to know this? Paul said in 2 Corinthians 2.11, so that no advantage would be taken of us by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. We gotta know. The devil is real. The devil is a person. Demons are true. There is actual spiritual warfare going on around us trying to undermine us or at least oppress us or keep us blind to the realities of eternity. And part of the reason 
Satan is so called out in the Word is that we not be deceived. That we would not be taken advantage of by his schemes. Now, that being said, Christians, please listen. We are not called to walk around scared to death of the devil. Fearing always that we are under attack. Hey, I get it. I'm under attack. But guess what? My Father is eternal. My Lord Jesus said, don't fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul. Rather fear Him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. What is the worst that Satan could possibly do to you? Kill you. Okay. Well, Rick, that's horrible. Yeah, he's a murderer. A manslaughterer. That's the worst he can do. My father's eternal. In my father's house are many rooms. He's building one for me right now. Deb Seibel claims that she's going to have one next door. And I'm like, "Uh -uh." (laughs) uh-uh. I love Deb, but all eternity? Come on. (laughs) She sent me an email and said that. Cracked me up. I want one right next door. Is that okay? I'm like, you know. It's your eternity, Deb. Jesus said this. He said, do not be afraid, little flock. Luke 12, 32. I don't know. I kind of like it when he calls me little flock. Your Father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. So be aware of the devil. Be certain that he is actual, that he is legitimate, that he is true, even though he's false, a liar. That he is a murderer, that he does have horrific schemes. But remember that you're a child of God. And that your Father has gladly chosen to give you the kingdom. Now back to the contentious court. Jesus is drawing an intensely deep line in the sand. Basically saying, you can choose here. You can choose one of two fathers and Abraham does not count. You can choose Father God or the Father of lies. And that's your choice. It's one or the other. Verse 48, the Jews answered and said to him, Do we not rightly say that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon. (laughs) But I honor my father and you dishonor me. You know what that is? They're on the verge right here of blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, the unforgivable sin. You have a demon, they say. You know what I love? Jesus doesn't even address the Samaritan comment. Aren't we not rightly rightly saying that that you are a Samaritan and a demon? And he says, I don't have a demon. (laughs) Why doesn't he say, well, I'm not a Samaritan? Primarily because he didn't have a problem with Samaritan company. Didn't bother Jesus. You can call me a Samaritan. I'm not, but you can call me one. That's okay. Didn't bother me in the least. This is the same Jesus who spent time with the woman at the well in Samaria, John chapter 4. Who healed the grateful Samaritan leper, Luke chapter 12. Who told the parable of the good Samaritan, Luke chapter 17. Beautiful evidence of a love that knows no borders. And you can try to slam Jesus with a Samaritan moniker. doesn't bother him at all. Because God so loved the world. Jesus says, I do not seek my glory. There is one who seeks and judges. Truly, truly, I say to you, there it is again, amen, amen, I say to you, if one keeps my word, he will never see death. Okay, two things. My word there is my logos. If one keeps my logos, Jesus is the Word made flesh, the Logos. And He says, if you keep my Logos now, and that Greek word keep is very important here, it's tereo, and in the verb form that it's presented, it means constant keeping. It's an ongoing keeping. It's a continual keeping. It's, it's keeping at it. If you keep my Word, if you keep keeping my Word, if you keep, keep keeping my Word, keep at it. It's a constancy. We're not talking about a few verses you learned once upon a time at Sunday school. That's not keeping His Word. Or maybe a list of verses that you learned when you joined the Navigators. Hey, that's a great thing. That's not keeping His Word. If you keep My Word, Jesus says, if you keep at it, if you keep with it, if you keep in it, you just keep on keeping it. But the problem is, 
we have far too much casual Christianity. Convenient church going. I'll go when it fits my schedule. I'll open the Bible when I get around to it. I'll study God's Word if I have time. And yet he's, His are the words Peter said of eternal life? We're talking about prayerful, passionate, keeping close of the most important thing in your life. Like you would keep some kind of treasure. Jesus said where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So question again. And this goes right back to the original question of how many are willing and ready to be teachers. Are you keeping at His Word? I'm preaching to the choir tonight, but I ask it anyway. Are you keeping at His Word? What do you cling to and treasure as much or more than His Word? I mean, think about it. What is your most prized possession? I mean, outside of my family, you know, living eternal things, it's, it's my guitar. Absolutely. No question about it. I have... Uh, wood and steel magazines that I get from Taylor Guitar and I read through these things and I drool over the wood. (laughs) I have this dream of a Hawaiian koa wood guitar. It's got this maple-figured Hawaiian leaf pattern in the neck. Oh, it's just beautiful. (laughs) What do you treasure most? What do you cling to? What do you keep What do you care for? Jesus says, If anyone keeps my word, and I love this, he will never see death. He will never see death. Now Jesus said, John 6.63, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit, and they are life. He said, truly, truly, I say to you, John 5, 24, He who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death and into life. So, yes, truly, when Jesus says this, if you keep my word, you'll never see death. He's talking about you will never see spiritual death. But listen. While spiritual death, eternal death, has no power over the keeper of His Word, in some cases, I believe He's talking about physical death itself that may be averted. Listen again to how He says it. If anyone keeps My Word, he will never see death. When has that ever happened? Twice, right off the bat. Enoch. Enoch who kept God's word. Enoch, Genesis 5.24. Enoch walked with God and he was not for God took him. And the Hebrew Scriptures commenting on that. Hebrews 11.5. By faith Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death. He was not found because God took him up for he obtained the witness that before his being taken up he was pleasing to God. He loved God's word. He spent time listening to the Lord. And as I've told you before, one day he just kept on walking. And they got so far out from Enoch's home, God just said, why don't you just keep coming on home with me? And off they went. He kept God's word and did not see death. Elijah. Elijah, 2 Kings 2.11. As they were going on, Elijah and Elisha... They're talking, behold, there appeared a chariot of fire and horses of fire which separated the two of them and Elijah went up by a whirlwind to heaven. And I've shared with you the words to an old Rich Mullins song, one of my favorite songs he ever wrote. Let me share them again. When I go, I want to go out like Elijah. With a whirlwind to fuel my chariot of fire. When I look back on the stars, it'll be like candlelight in Central Park, and it won't even hurt to say goodbye. And I believe that there are some here tonight who will not taste death because you keep His Word. And I'm talking about what the Bible calls our blessed hope. When the church of the last days will be like Enoch, like Elijah, taken up. Chariots optional. 
1 Thessalonians 4.17, We who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, so we shall always be with the Lord. Why? Because we kept His Word. If you will keep the perseverance of My Word, Jesus says, I will keep you from the time of testing, which is about to come upon the whole world. Revelation 3.18, I think. Or 10. It's one of the two. Or in between. It's in Revelation 3. Well, now the Jewish rulers are absolutely riled up. These guys are stirred. In verse 52, they cry out, they say to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, and the prophets also. And you say, if anyone keeps my word, he'll never taste of death. And I know they said it like that. Surely you're not greater than our father Abraham who died? The prophets died too. Whom do you make yourself out to be? Surely you're not greater than Abraham. Well, he is, and his name's not Shirley. Don't the Pharisees believe in the resurrection? I mean, he says, if you keep my word, you will not see death. And they freak out. These are the guys who are supposed to teach this stuff. These are the guys who are supposed to point to the spiritual truths of the Tanakh, of the Hebrew Scriptures. Who are supposed to encourage their people to have faith in God and trust in the Lord and that resurrection is real and that Messiah is coming. That was their task. That was their charge. What was their problem? They're stuck in the natural. And we need to understand this, gang, that religion saps the super out of supernatural. Religion keeps us in the natural world. Religion keeps us thinking naturally. Churchiness keeps us from being spiritual people. And I, I'll make a commitment to you all. I will fight churchiness everywhere I see it. I do not want to be a part of a religious institution. I do, however, want to passionately chase after Jesus. I want to run with Him. I want the gushing torrents of His Holy Spirit as we talked about the living water flowing, welling up from within. I want to live a life that is filled with joy and relationship that's genuine and authentic and real and and not what so often happens when we get settled into churches. And you know me, I'm not opposed to the church as God sees it. That living, breathing, moving spiritual organism, the church, the body of Christ, that's awesome. I want every part of that. But I do not want religious institutionalism because it becomes pharisaical. And that's what we see in these guys. Not only can they not believe Jesus, but now they're going after Him for talking about resurrection, which is something they ought to be teaching. But they can't. They're too comfortable in their religion. And in verse 54... Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say He is our God. And you have not come to know Him. I know Him. If I say that I do not know Him, I will be a liar like you. But I do know Him (laughs) and keep His word. And then Jesus pushes it right off the cliff. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. I want you to to try, if you can, to imagine the look on the faces of the Pharisees in this moment. I mean, red-faced and angry and ready to explode. And Jesus just keeps pushing. And pushing. And pushing until finally he says, Hey, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. What? When did Abraham ever see Jesus? Come on! Well, you may know the story. Some may be familiar with it. Abraham had just rescued Lot. He was coming back from a war with the kings, a guerrilla warfare brilliantly fought by Abraham and his servants. And they defeated these kings and rescued Lot. And they're making their way back now to Hebron. And on the way there, a mysterious king came out to greet him from a place called Salem. First mentioned in the Bible of Jerusalem. 
This king comes out from Salem. Genesis 14, verse 18. His name is Melchizedek. King of Salem. And he brought out, interestingly, he brought out bread and wine. First mention of bread and wine together in the Bible. When this king, Melchizedek, from Salem, brings it out. And this king is also priest of God Most High. Genesis 14:19. He blessed Abram and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And the Bible says, in that moment, Abraham gave him a tithe. A tenth of all the spoils of that war. A tenth of his victory. He worshipped when this king came out. Listen to the New Testament commentary on Melchizedek. Hebrews 7.1 says, This Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of God Most High, who met Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham apportioned a tenth part of all the spoils, was first of all, by translation of his name, Melchizedek, king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, which is to say, king of of peace king of righteousness king of peace bringing out bread and wine to meet Abraham are you getting the picture and then the Hebrew writer goes on to say without father without mother without genealogy having neither beginning of days nor end of life but made like the son of God he remains a priest perpetually this guy brings out the symbols of communion And Jesus says, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad, and I believe, for one, that that was the day. That Melchizedek was what we call a Christophany. And that is an Old Testament appearance of Jesus prior to his incarnation into the flesh. That he showed up. Why would you believe such a ridiculous thing? Well, because Jesus said it. Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. Now, either Abraham is really, really old, or Jesus, Jesus would have to be really, really old. Well, this is, this is the final straw for the Pharisees. Verse 57, the Jews said to him, You are not yet 50 years old, and you have seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you before Abraham was born, I am. Boom! I am that I am. Exodus 3.14 The name of God, the tetragrammaton in the Hebrew, Yahweh. I am. Before Abraham was born, I am. Ego me in the Greek, and we've seen this several times. And by the way, anyone who tries to tell you that Jesus was not God in the flesh has spent no time in John chapter 8. Because he's already said it twice to the Pharisees. And like the whole your father thing going over the, their heads, the ego me went over their heads. You could say they had ego on their heads. Went over their heads. But John 8, 24... Jesus had already said, Therefore I say to you, you will die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Chapter 8, verse 28, He says, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am. Ego me. He said it again. They're not picking it up. So finally, He puts it in terms that they cannot possibly miss. Before Abraham was born, I am. And His name, the great I am, rocks their world. And so they start racing to grab the nearest rocks. (laughs) To stone Him and take Him out. Now listen, before that happened, they said something that that I've always wondered about. They said... You're not even 50. Why would they say that? Why wouldn't they say you're not even 30? Or or why wouldn't they say, you know, you're hardly near 40? I, I think it's funny that they say it at all. You're not even 50, as if being 50 would be more reasonable considering Abraham had lived 2,000 years ago. 
I mean, if you were 50, maybe we could have this conversation, you know? (laughs) What? (laughs) Is it possible that Jesus looked old enough to be taken for 50? Why would you say that? Well, think of his life. Think of the weight that he carried. Think of the burdens that he bore. And think of how that draws down. Think of you know, presidential aging in just four to eight years is pretty astounding. We've seen in our country, there's not a man who's become president who hasn't aged tremendously, which makes me a little worried for Hillary. Anyway. <laughs> I'm sorry, that one got by me. Where's the filter when I need it? <laughs> If I look at a picture of myself, in fact, I've told you about this, my driver's license, I had to renew it. When I saw the old one versus the new one, it was like, you've got to be kidding. And I blame my children entirely. But when I was 30 versus how I look now at 50, huge difference. When I was 30, you wouldn't have said to me, you're not yet 50, and how can you say this? You would have said, you know, what are you, like 30, 30, early 30, somewhere in there? Now when you look at me, what are you like, 50, 60? <laughs> and they say this to Jesus, and, and all kidding aside, Isaiah 53 verse 3 says, He was despised, he was forsaken of men, he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and that will age you. Like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. If the President of the United States ages in four to eight years, how much more the Messiah of the world in 33 years? And so perhaps they were taking a guess at his age based on his countenance. I don't know. But verse 59 says, Therefore they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. I don't know how you do that. You got an angry mob picking up stones, getting ready to stone you to death, and you slip away. But he did. Now here's the question I want to ask after going through that and thinking through this chapter. Why did Jesus kick the hornet's nest? Why did he antagonize them so? He does. I mean, and there, there's really no doubt about it. The compassionate Christ, who we have seen be so gentle, so loving, so intentional in his teaching with so many, gets into this conversation with these Jewish leaders, and man, he takes them to task. He calls them liars. They are. So it's not slander, it's the truth. He says they are of their father, the devil, which again, they are. It's not slander. It's the truth. But he really goes after them. And I have wondered that before. Reading John 8, why does he get so antagonistic with these Jewish leaders? By the time he says, before Abraham was born, I am, we've got fuming Pharisees and seething scribes. These guys are loaded for bear and ready to take Jesus out. Why does he antagonize them? Lots of Christians today would be offended by Jesus' teaching, especially in John 8. If you were in the crowd, many Christians would say, that's the wrong direction to go, Jesus. You're being offensive, Jesus. Dial it down, Jesus. Don't call out sin, Jesus. Don't talk about adultery or alcoholism or or divorce. Those are painful things for people. Don't talk about that stuff, Jesus. Pastor Rick, don't don't talk about homosexuality. What if someone's struggling with that and they walk into the church that Sunday and that's what they hear and they're offended and they leave? Don't talk about those things. Keep the teaching comforting. Keep it light. And don't cover the stuff that won't that, that, that will embarrass people. Avoid the things that are embarrassing. Man, if I did that, I could probably preach in about 20 minutes or less. Here's the thing. Was Jesus antagonistic? Yes. Why? James A. Garfield said, The truth will set you free, but first it will make you miserable. 
I've heard it quoted different ways. The truth will set you free, but first it's going to tick you off. And you know what? There's some truth to that truth. Who likes to be called down on anything? Who likes to be rebuked or reproved or shown where we are wrong or have the sin highlighted in us? Nobody wants that. Nobody enjoys that. But Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4.1, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by His appearing and His kingdom, preach the Word. He says, be ready in season and out of season. And then he uses these words, listen, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. If all we do is sit around and talk about the things that are easy to hear, we are not reproving, rebuking, or exhorting. The word, the truth, is going to tick you off. Especially when it comes head to head with the sin in your own life, in my own life. I don't want to be called out for my sin, but I need to be called out for my sin. Such is the grace and the mercy and the compassion of Jesus that He is going at it with the Pharisees. He's pulling out all the stops to pull out their sin to show them what it is so they can see what it is and perhaps repent and themselves have life. He's hitting them hard. Hebrews 12.11 says, All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Jesus calls out sin. And I think the church is remiss in 2015 in the calling out of sin. I don't think we call out sin enough. Not to be judgmental. Not to point fingers at non-Christians. Oh, you're a sinner, you're a sinner, you're a sinner, and here's how you're all going to hell. That's not what I'm saying. But calling sin, sin. Calling things what they are. Is alcoholism a disease? Or is it sin? It's sin. Sin is a disease that gets hold of you and, and latches on. And all these things that we would whitewash... And we would soften. If you start reading through the Gospels and looking at what Jesus said, the words that came out of His mouth and how He called out sin, He doesn't let anybody off the hook easily. Uh, The last time He was in Jerusalem, remember He healed the lame man by the pool of Bethesda. What did He say to him when the guy caught up to him later that day? Stop sinning so nothing worse will happen to you. Called out His sin. What had He just said? Moments before this explosion among the Pharisees to the woman who they dragged in there in adultery. Has anyone condemned you? No, Lord, no one. Neither then do I condemn you. Go your way and sin no more. Translation. What you were caught doing, let's be clear about it, it was sin. That adulterous affair? Yes, sin. I forgive you. Stop doing it. The man is lowered down from the roof in Capernaum to be healed of his lameness. And the first words out of Jesus' mouth are, My son, your sins are forgiven. Because Jesus dealt with sin. And and not just with the Pharisees. I think that's the reason that the outsiders flocked to him. And the prostitutes loved him. And the drunks proposed a toast. Because Jesus was a guy who was not afraid to roll up his sleeves and be real with messy people and the messes we make. He says, this is your sin. Now let's deal with it together. That's the way of Jesus. Grace and truth. Mercy and righteousness. And sometimes, frankly, we just need a little messianic meddling to get the sin out of us so we don't keep repeating again and again and again. Even when we see Jesus going after the Pharisees, it's not for vengeance sake, 
He's not venting. It's not slander. It's not sarcasm. It is not scorn. It's truth. And what did Jesus say about truth? The truth will set you free. Father, we come before you tonight seeking that freedom. We bow humbly before the great I Am, our Lord Jesus Christ, who is and who was and who is to come. And we pray, would you give us humble hearts to receive your truth, each and every one of us. Even if that truth is a rebuke, even if that truth is some thing, some area in my life, some secret sin I have not wanted to deal with, Father, I pray by Your grace and mercy that You would draw it out and make me willing to see it for what it is. And then wash me clean, sanctify and cleanse and teach me to walk in grace, Father. We praise Your name. We love You, Lord, in Jesus. We pray tonight. Amen.